Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Celtic Soul Podcast. I'm Andrew Millen, and you're all very welcome. It's been a year since the first episode of the Celtic Soul Podcast came out. That year has flew by, even though we've been locked down for most of it. And thanks to all our guests, we had a very broad range of guests from all walks of life who joined us to let us into their Celtic souls. And we also had some really, really good tunes to play us out of each show. So thanks to the musicians who submitted their music as well. Much appreciated. My guest in the show today is Hugo Strainy. Hugo is a familiar face as the entertainment host of the North American Federation Celtic Supporters Club biannual Celtic Supporters Convention in Las Vegas. Hugo was born in Belfast but emigrated as a 16-year-old teenager to Toronto. We get the story behind a man in the green and white suit from the Divis Flats who has entertained us for so many years at the time when we should now be packing our bags to head to Vegas for another big Celtic party. But it wasn't to be cancelled due to COVID but hopefully we'll all be back next June celebrating in the big pool all together hugging, drinking and having the crack this episode has been kindly sponsored by John Lennon or John Descarf as he's known to many many Celtic fans after 44 years away in Canada John made an emotional return to Celtic Park and I had the pleasure of interviewing him in Philadelphia when the Ploughboys invited us over to do the first of our two Celtic AMs over there and Hopefully, John, we'll all be back there soon. And I believe you're hoping to come across the Atlantic again in April and return to paradise. Fingers crossed for that one. Many of our listeners will know John from Las Vegas, where he runs the Celtic Family Memorial Mass. So, John, thanks very much for your support again, and I'm glad you're enjoying the podcasts. If you're a Celtic-minded business, a Celtic supporter, or a Celtic supporters club, and you like what we're doing with the podcast and across our independent fan media platform and would like to sponsor an episode or put a sponsor in the fans in, please email us at info at or contact us through the website or on social media. 
If you're a listener or a reader, or both, you can support our independent media platform by visiting CelticFansin.com, where you can become a member, subscribe, buy, or donate for a price of a pint. Your support will help us to continue to produce quality independent fan journalism, the fanzine, podcast, content for Celtic Fanzine TV, and a couple of fan events. Don't forget to visit the website, CelticFansin.com, for daily news, articles, and you'll find all the podcasts there. And please visit our YouTube channel, Celtic Fanzine TV, and please, please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost anything, it just takes a minute. And on the YouTube channel, you'll also find all the podcasts, along with Celtic AM, Talk of the Terrace, Millish Meets, and our new history podcast with David Potter, The Grand Old History, and a few other bits and pieces, including the recent Scott Brown question and answers. And keep all those suggestions coming in for guests, and as always, we'll reach out and try and get them on the show. And here's a few comments we received from last week. On the podcast with Tommy Sheridan, well, we had some controversial comments coming in about Tommy. He certainly splits the crowd. Must be doing something right, Tommy. You've been, you've you've annoyed a few people over the years, but you've also made a few people happy because there's some very positive comments coming in as well. Brilliant interview, Dougie Crosby said in Sunderland, as does Nuri McKeegan. And our friends, Tyrone CSC, right, once again, another brilliant podcast. Keep up the good work. Tommy Onfire spoke very, very well. And Billy Bragg, cracking song. Another great show. And that comes from Mick Scannell in Dublin. I love listening to Tommy. I completely share his views. I was ashamed at the Walters treatment. And I also remember going further back when we beat Real Madrid 2-0 and Laurie Cunningham was subjected to racial abuse. But Tommy is right. We as a fan base have evolved in the right direction. The Rangers fan base have regressed. The biggest mistake from 2012 was allowing the new club to use the name Rangers. That should have been prevented. And that comes in Magnus67. And thank you very much, Magnus67, for subscribing to our YouTube channel. And from our Celtic Fanzine TV, while I'm on the YouTube channel, Grand Old History Podcast with David Potter, I have a lovely comment coming in from a resident of Guido. Don't worry about us, we'll be fine. The quadruple and the double nine. God bless Paddy Querent and the parish of Guido. Hail, hail. And here's a couple from some of the articles we had on the website. On the season books, added value or failed to share Celtic values. Nicholas Harmon in London writes, I just wish the club came out honestly and said, we didn't give you value for your season ticket last year, but we can't afford to give you refunds if we want to get back on track. The season ticket make up 40% of club revenue, and as such, it's right that there is some form of fan representation in the boardroom. Treat us like adults, talk to us honestly, and start healing the division between the boardroom and the stands. Don't just say, no really, we give you value, honest. Now, where's your money? In truth, these extras should come as a standard with any season ticket purchased during any season. And that comes in on Twitter from McGilla Weir. And on the Seville article, I'll finish up on this one, an article I wrote called Seville, Peace, Love and Larson. I was there with my brother Jerry. It was a great day. 80,000 plus genuine Celtic fans. No trouble. Amazing even soft Celtic fans pulling a Porto fan out of the river near the stadium. Only sad thing was obviously the result. Big Bobo, you let us down. But in my humble opinion, I witnessed the two best-headed goals I've ever seen by Henrik Larsson. Absolutely classed. Slept on the floor of the airport. Amazing place. Was buzzing with Celtic songs. Fantastic. Hail, hail. You'll never walk alone. I like was it Tom Ward. And the tweet of the week comes in from Sweetly Pops. And it reads, On this day in 1967, 
Celtic up and talks but Eddie Howe <laughs> folks keep all those comments coming in and thanks very much for listening and reading on Wednesday at midday Celtic announced that season book tickets for the upcoming season would be frozen at the same price as last season and that each season ticket holder would get a £50 voucher for the Celtic Superstore as an added value for last season but nobody was allowed to sit in the seat or stand in the standing section due to the ongoing restrictions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic when we all became virtual fans. Like mainstream media and the independent Celtic fan media, we here at More Than 90 Minutes were made aware of the launch of the season book renewals about an hour or so before it was announced. But the news we were really expecting to hear was that of the new manager. We still wait for that announcement. The announcement about the season books also came the morning after the Celtic Trust had announced that their proposal to the board for season books added value to be given to season ticket holders in the form of shares which would not cost the club anything in cash which would be needed to bolster the squad for next season's challenge and would also be seen as a goodwill gesture towards the fans but sadly the board didn't see it that way customers not fans really the Celtic Trust was the only proposal that we are aware of made by any Celtic supporters group and it was backed publicly by some supporters groups while others remained on the sidelines. As a member of the Celtic Trust I thought the proposal was a very forward thinking idea and one that would go some way to close the gap between the board of directors and us the fans which has grown wider with each passing week during the past year. But now we know that the Celtic fans base as I said will remain customers in the eyes of the current board. Not everyone agrees with the Celtic Trust proposal and they may be happy with the voucher and the season book price being frozen. All opinions on season books should be respected if you agree with them or not. It's now an individual choice for each supporter to make if they decide to renew their season book or not for the upcoming season. I, like every other fan, hope that the vaccine will be the game changer that sees us back in Celtic Park. Because like so many, I will be renewing my season book and those running the club know our emotional attachment to the club is so great that we want to go back supporting the team as soon as possible. Not being able to travel to Celtic Park and go on those away days has left a massive void in our lives over the past year. The millions of pounds we plough into supporting the team collectively each season through season books, merchandise, match day sales is the lifeblood of Celtic and the cash flow that keeps the club on a successful path. Sure, the corporate sponsorship is vital. It's vital income also but they come and go but the support remains but yet again the support continues to be divided over the season books on social media you can read the disgust felt by some fans who feel let down once again with the club after witnessing a season from hell there's also fans who are saying buy a season book or shut up and let someone else buy it Celtic fans come from a broad church from many backgrounds and cultures for some it's just about the football for others it's the history and the social aspect of the community it represents and for others it may be about something else altogether but we all share one common goal and that's to see Celtic do well three factors brought Celtic Park back to capacity when time was called on Ronnie Dealey's successful tenure as Celtic manager the appointment of a quality manager in Brendan Rodgers the return of those famous Champions League nights and the Rangers winning promotion to the SPFL. We all expect Eddie Howe to be unveiled as Celtic manager at some stage. Will that be enough along with the Celtic fans longing to return to paradise? 
but still uncertain when, who and how many will be allowed. So many questions remain unanswered and there's no roadmap yet announced for a return to a capacity crowd full football stadium. Fans may decide to hold out in the short term. On top of that, we have the Champions League qualifiers and we're in the non-champions route and it's going to be a very, very tough ass for the new manager. But time will tell. Some Celtic fans have had a tough year. They may have found themselves unemployed or relying on food banks to feed their family. So renewing a season book will not be high on their priority list. Others may decide enough is enough. This is not the club I fell in love with. It's more for the suits and the shareholders and those who drink fine wines rather than barrel on match days. Or maybe they've took up a hobby during the lockdown. Maybe the weekend will now be more about family than football. If a positive comes out of this, maybe it will be that the Celtic Trust membership will continue to grow and get bigger. And with each and every member comes more shares. And with more shares comes the day that Celtic fans can finally have a say on the running of our great club and question those in charge because at the moment it may be a new CEO but it's the same old board. Hugo Strainy loves to entertain, that's for sure. From Toronto to Las Vegas, he loves the show business. He also loves the Celtic and was lucky enough to take in a number of games before emigrating to Canada, including that famous night in Hamden Park when Leeds were beaten in the semi-final of the European Cup. In Canada, he found a new life from the Divis Flats that he had grown up in. But in only a few years after emigrating, he returned to the Emerald Oil to say farewell to his cousin Joseph, who had died on hunger strike in the Maze prison. Here's Hugo's story. Hi Hugo, you're very welcome to the Celtic Soul podcast. At a time when we all should be getting ready for a week's party in Las Vegas, but hopefully we'll all be back together next year. Will you be hosting next year's event? And... Tell us a little bit your history with the event and how you became involved. Well, hello to you, Andrew. It's uh, good to be among you and it's good to hear your voice because when I hear your voice, it's almost I can see myself at uh, Paradise Boulevard in 37 degrees uh, Celsius and we're all sweating. So it's nice to be among you. And Anyway, uh, I hope you're well. Uh, yeah, it's look, it's, it's, it's a bit deflating that we're not heading off to the desert uh, but hopefully, hopefully, in one calendar year from now, we'll all be together. It's a, it's you've been there, Andrew. It's an incredible experience. As I say to people, imagine being among two to five thousand people who all think like you. That doesn't happen, and everybody is full of joy. There's no, there's no animosity. There's nobody who's wanting to be better than anybody. There's nobody causing aggravation. And that's what makes us as Celtic supporters and a worldwide family a whole lot different than any other sporting team or franchise. Would you agree? I would indeed. No, it's it's a wonderful occasion, Hugo. But um, I go back to 2000 when I started first attending and um, I missed the first two. Jackie, when I had him in the podcast, told us it started in 96. Joe Cook goes a little further back. He says it happened when LA CSC headed down for a a couple of days on a few buses. And I think that's where the idea came from. Well, that's how Joe tells it anyway. But if I go back to my first convention, you passed me on a horse <laughs> uh, on your way to the stage. And uh, it's not the, it wasn't the last time you would pass me at a dinner on a horse. <laughs> no, it's, they were incredible times. And oh, look, 
Vegas, everything is just uber in Vegas. And so I'm, it's just, it was a laugh. It was, you know, something to do. I was introduced to that horse in the parking lot by the handler. The, I'll never forget the name of the horse. It was called Thunder. And you can imagine me getting on the back of Thunder. What people failed to realize was they all thought I was driving that horse. There was a handler in front who was snuck down and, and made sure that I, everybody would think it was me. But it was, uh, to, go, to go back to Joe's story, Joe, Joe, Joe's been everywhere. Joe was the cabin boy on the Titanic. You know that, right? So, but the, fir- the very first convention, uh, was full of, you know, you know, people anticipate, people didn't really know what was going to happen. There was like three to 500 people there. And the first convention story was I got to meet two guys who you know very well, who have been now lifelong friends, Danny Riley and Ricky Fearon, who are two gems of people, peaches of guys. Anyway, while we were at the bar waiting on everybody coming out, we had gone down for the week. And I think it was a Tuesday night in the Imperial Palace. And there was a legend show. Uh, upstairs, and Ricky had bought himself one ticket. He wasn't very generous to the rest of us. He had went to the early show. He came back down to the bar, told myself and Danny and a few other patrons that the show was fantastic, and you should see the guy doing Elvis. So Danny says, well, do you want to go again? All three of us will go again. It was twenty nine ninety five plus you know, a few drinks, a couple of complimentary drinks. So we all head up. I head up to, to get the tickets for all three of us again. And sure enough, there in the lobby is the Shania Twain tribute, Elton John, uh, Tom Jones. And I noticed the biggest crowd is around Elvis, who we both have an affinity for. And I, I, I thought I recognized the guy doing Elvis. And sure enough, I did recognize the guy doing Elvis. He was a Dublin-born guy who lived in Toronto. Real name, Graham Doyle. And as he caught my eyes, he basically said to me, who, what the F are you doing here? How about that? He was like, you, you go. Anyway, he went from, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. What the fuck's going on here? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so I told him I was with a Celtic convention that were playing right next door to him. And so we went to the show and he came back after the show to meet Danny and Ricky and myself. And, you know, it was, was quite a challenge. So I said to him, uh, can you help us out here, Graham? Because I, I didn't have an intro. I didn't know what to do in that first convention. And he said to me, well, what do you need? I said, look, could you come before the early show starts and open up the show? And he said, sure. And he said, uh, you know, would you like Marilyn Monroe to come along? There was a Marilyn Monroe uh, girl who would come out and do, you know, where the dress blows up, you know, from that, the seven-year itch. And I said, do you know Marilyn Monroe? He said, I'm sleeping with her, right? <laughs> so it was his girlfriend. It was his girlfriend at the time. So sure enough, comes opening night. The opening of that first convention, Graham Patrick, as he's known now, he's actually based in Berlin, opened up the show, not in an Elvis outfit. He wasn't allowed to wear the, the jumpsuit. Uh, he came as Elvis and with Marilyn Monroe, and he got up on stage and sang Can't Help Falling in Love. And uh, the finish up to that story is, Andrew, you'll enjoy the story. Uh, during the part of the show, right near the Elvis end, there's uh, like these uh, bars come down like you're in a jail. Right. And he says to the audience, I guess you know what I'm going to sing next. And it's actually the lighting guy who replies because, you know, the audience are a bit stunned. And the actual reply is heartbreak hotel. Right. So on the Saturday night, because he opened up for us on the Friday night, 
the place was packed with Celtic people on the Saturday night. And it comes to that part of the show, the jail cell comes down, the bars come down, and he says to the audience, I guess you know what I'm going to sing next. And before the lighting guy could shout out his reply, somebody shouted out, the man behind the wire! (laughs) (laughs) Graham Doyle was on his knees. He couldn't go into the next song. And that's... That, that's an early memory of Vegas uh, that, you know, there's been some great memories, some great memories of Vegas. Uh, meeting meeting people from around the world uh, is, and uh, meeting people who know your family. Uh, and I mean, you know, it, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling to be part of that. But to be among people who think like you and wear that shirt, which is an iconic shirt, you know, like my, my kids, since I've been young, no matter where I brought them, I always told them, Spot the hoops, no matter where I've been in North America, anywhere, Canada, Dad, I spotted the hoops, and you know that—that's what—that's what—that's an instant connection to us. I was in Melbourne, Australia, and going for a cup of coffee, and a guy ran across the street. Hell, hell! That's that's who gets that? Who gets that? No. Can I tell you one uh, real, very interesting story about Vegas? And you were there. But you never seen what happened. I think you were doing your uh, full Monty at the side of the pool there, yourself and Tommy Conlon. Do you remember that? <laughs> no comments. Well, it was the last year of the Riv, and here's here's how poignant and serious things can get. And you know, it can be a little bit overbearing. Uh, you know, three thousand people at the Riviera pool there. We had some many great times at the Riviera, and you know, no no one ever really got. No one ever really got out of order. You know, people, people were, you know, slightly inebriated, you know, had maybe the sun got to them. But there was one guy in front of me uh, while I was underneath the, uh, the tent there. And, uh, he kept coming forward to me with this little plastic bag, which I thought was maybe illegal. Anyway, a few people had said, is everything all right? I said, he's okay. He was already, right. he was fine. He was just, he was just slightly under the weather. And he kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And I mean, it was getting near the end. It was getting near the end of the climax where, you know, we're going to send it off in good style. Anyway, he, he kind of collapsed. And we got, got him some help, got him over, got him straightened out. And it looked like some family members was coming over looking after him. Anyway, while we're kind of into the last 15 minutes of the, the afternoon there, it's about quarter to six, uh, another girl who had been tending to him came forward with the plastic bag. And I said, oh, what's going on here? And she said, is everything okay, Hugo? I said, yeah. She said, you know, that's my brother. She said, was he, was he a nuisance? I said, no, 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 no. Is he okay? Yeah, he's fine. He's just, he's, you know, he's had too much sun. And she said, look, he's been trying to talk to you all afternoon. And I said, why? He said, these are my father's ashes. And my father was a lifelong Celtic supporter. And we spread these ashes at his place of birth somewhere in Scotland. At Celtic, outside Celtic Park, we'd like, with your permission, to spread them here in Vegas. And Andrew, that, see, that's where, that's, that, that's, that was almost like, man, I was, it was an incredible, even telling you, I, I get a little bit emotional about it. So I'm not, that's how deep the tradition goes with this club that this guy had brought part of his father to Las Vegas to honor him, uh, with all these Celtic supporters. So that's, it's, you know, it's, I still think about it. I still think about that guy and I hope they're all well, but that's a little story that nobody would really know about, but it was, it was, it was immense for me to see that in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. It is indeed. I have memories of John Darcy, a good, good pal of ours. Um, he passed away 
after we got back from um, Juventus game in Celtic Park and again he was cremated and some of his ashes were taken on the boat and we don't travel on the boat anymore we fly but the lads got on the boat and they spread some of his ashes on the cross and from Belfast to Canrine and then I'd flown over to the game I wasn't aware I was over Sam for the weekend I wasn't aware the lads were doing the ashes this weekend and the ashes were sitting in the middle of a table in Celtic Park and uh, Sam came in and says you know what's that to, to me May Hilly and Hilly and John had lived together in Birmingham for years and he just casually turned around and he says that's 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 a bit of Darcy he's going onto the pitch at half time <laughs> and he did he was spent he went down at half time and, and spread him on you know or maybe at the end of the game he, he went down got on how he got onto the pitch got on the pitch and, and spread the ashes and yeah people feel so so close that their wishes are that they'd be spread among the great team that plays in that park and then wherever the fans go and in his case it was crossing the Irish Sea well even in death you know people are still with us so that's that's you know and I you know I've, I've lost parents and I lost my sister I lost my brother a couple of years ago uh, it's 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 I think it's a great honor to, to, to think about those people who are are not with us anymore in you know in real life uh, and it was, it was it's I wouldn't say it was a wonderful thing I was grateful that I experienced that and with that uh, brother and sister there because that that's kind of rooted to say you know what you're you're a Celtic player, you're born a Celtic player, you are a Celtic supporter, you die as a Celtic supporter, but you're forever a Celtic supporter. You're forever a Celtic fan, and that's that's just it in a nutshell. None of us, but you know, it's it's sad to think we're not we're not heading off to Las Vegas. But uh, let's 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 just keep the faith here, and in one year we'll all be at that pool in the Westgate and uh, having a cup of tea and maybe something more. Uh, as yourself and a few other people <laughs> but I have but uh, it's, it's I've been known to partake in a few drinks in Las Vegas <laughs> I generally miss a day when I go to Las Vegas but I'd be very tired and jet like around the middle of the week yeah personally my last little story about Vegas is one year we decided to do the cabaret night as, as, as mm-hmm. you know it's a big hit now with Patrick Rowling bringing over the comedians well the first cabaret night there was no comedians. I, I never knew there was any comedian. I thought there was always going to be three comedians coming, but they never came. Anyway, so I did the cabaret show and I was doing a little tribute to Sinatra at the top of the ridge. Remember that? The 40th floor up there, which if anybody has ever seen the movie Casino, that's where the wedding scene was all filmed. And I, the song I'm singing is I've Got You Under My Skin. And I hear this electric motor at the back of me going, you're, 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 been in the gig and business for a long time you're very careful at sound what's that sound is it coming through your uh, pa or your microphone and i hear this mm, and i turn around and i notice this the window blinds are being raised and as they're being raised it also comes to the bridge of the song that it's a 24 bridge there right in that iconic sonata song and the curtains open up and you're overlooking las vegas and I immediately just said to the people, ladies and gentlemen, Las Vegas, I don't know what happened, but apparently Tom Donnelly had been to Vegas a couple of months before, had been to the top of the Riv. Somebody was doing a show, and he decided at that moment he pushed the buttons for the blinds. Uh, I, I never forget the look of John Andrews' face, and uh, it, all the people were like, it was part of the show. It was a complete accident. So it was, But it's a wonderful memory for me. 
I was I was at that gig. I, I was I was in the audience. I remember. Do you remember I that? Really, yeah, and it was it was a brilliant moment. It's stunning to look over the city and we talked there about doing Sinatra and the view of the, of Vegas. Vegas has changed so much since since two thousand since since I started going, and probably for the worst because a lot of the history is now dying in Vegas and that kind of. I wouldn't say seedy, but that the Vegas that you grew up watching in movies, and 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 it's a shame, but it, it, everything moves on, and you know it's now based in the Westgate. But I think of all, the, I, I was in the New Frontier as well, but I think the Riviera was kind of for me anyway. But you know, was was Vegas at the peak? Because, oh yeah, you know, because you could get it, you could get a cheap prawn cocktail, you could get a cheap meal, cheap beer, and that was what Vegas was like when I started going first. And now it's just. You know, they want to make the, as Jackie says, they want to make the dollar on everything now. Drink food. Maybe it's maybe it's a safer place with the mob moving out, but certainly their influence made it a bit cheaper for me. See, you're right, because when we first started going in the 90s, we used to go to Caesar's Palace, and there used to be a food court in Caesar's Palace. Myself and Ricky and Danny and my little friend Tony Feeney and a couple of other people. And we used to go to the food court in Caesar's Palace. It's not there anymore. And we used to go and watch just a show. And I've seen Little Anthony and the, and the Imperials there. I've seen a guy called Kenny Wilkinson, who was the opening act for like Bill Cosby and stuff. This guy was incredible. All for nothing. You could go to the food court, pick up yourself up a slice of pizza and come back and enjoy top-notch entertainment. That doesn't happen anymore. You're right. It's a sad day. The one that sticks out for me was the MGM Grand on a night in the afternoon. It, right in the center of the casino, there's a huge stage above the bar. And we saw the Elvis tribute there, and it was done by Johnny Seaton, who played Elvis on Broadway. Probably sure. the best. And actually, Johnny is better than, than the Elvis I paid in to see in Vegas. And an amazing show. And he came down to us after the gig, and he said, Where he's from? And we told him, There's a bit of time of us. And he, we told him, and he says, What story about it? The Green and White. And we told him this, about the Celtic Convention and that. And then he says, hold on there. And he went off and he went back and he was all at Johnny Seaton show T-shirt. So it was a lovely moment. But that was a free show. And that's probably the best show I've seen in Vegas, even ones I've paid into. It was just it was just amazing. And I think that goes back to, that was the year, it was 2002, because we were, Ireland was in the World Cup in Japan and we were had river dance in the marquee at the back of the new frontier. Now, um, one of the lads got married as well, so and we had a stag party. So it was a great, um, great memories and so many memories. And then, and then the, the, I'm sure the cast of Riverdance came and played for us at the dinner dance, remember that? Of course they did, because they were from Toronto. <laughs> oh, good lad, people. <laughs> only the best, only the best. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and years later, just knocking off track, but years later, one of, the, one of the two of the crew from that Riverdance, I was in Disney, the adult Disney whatever the one with the pubs and that and uh, they were Irish dancing it there they were doing a show there and I bumped into them it's just small walls well before we get off Vegas can I give you the, the greatest uh, analogy of Las Vegas that I've ever heard a friend of mine Ronnie McGarry uh, these two guys who came from Belfast from Ardoyne looking for Ronnie and they couldn't find him for the whole week it was in the Riv uh, I believe and they couldn't find him and on the last day they found him they found him at the bar, him and his wife, and they, they got to, and they, apparently Ronnie had gone to school with them and stuff like that. So the first guy was really all over Ronnie. The second guy was kind of quiet, kind of, you know, he was like, he was like, the, you know, the, he was a, a thinker. And I said to him, have you been to Vegas before? No, this is my first time I've ever been here. I said, do you like it? 
He said, it's like Disneyland with tits, he said. That's, <laughs> that's, that's one of the great analogies of Las Vegas. <laughs> I'm going to go back now. I'm going to take you back. Um, here you go. You emigrated as a teenager. What was the thinking behind that? Was it to get away from the conflict? Was it employment? You know, you arrived in Toronto. Um, what was the early reaction then from leaving Belfast to, to a new life in the new city, far away from the war that was going on on the streets of your native Belfast? Uh, I, I, I took what they call a gap year now. My career teacher told me to take a, a year off uh, to finish. I'd done, just finished my old levels and I, I took a job. You know, I, I was delivering newspapers as well. At that time, my sister, my sister Lily, who lived here for quite a few years, she had come home. In those days, you know, I played a bit of sports, Gaelic football, uh, played for the local soccer team, Immaculata. And, you know, you played a lot of snooker. I know snooker is still a big thing at home, but snooker was a big thing then. And there was a, uh, I was involved in a snooker match on the B team. I never made the A team. And we all went to the snooker game. And I was asked, there was, the guy said to me, would you referee the first couple of games? So I refereed the snooker game. And so I was refereed the snooker game. And this is at the uh, St. Peter's CYMS Club on Albert Street. And a massive bomb went off. Huge, like 100-pound bomb went off. It shook the building. And within minutes, uh, a British Army foot patrol had come in. And in those days, you know, the, that's, that's what they usually did. They usually swarmed the area, came in. And what was a little bit different about this one, the guy who was leading them had taken out his short arm, which was on a lanyard. Like, they don't usually pull out their short arms, you know. And he walked around the tables. Everybody went quiet. The game continued because you we were told that just go on with your normal life while the British Army were there. And he walked right up to me uh, as a, you know, 16 or 15 and a half year old kid. He said, you out, out now with a few expletives. And myself and everybody, mostly everybody at, at the snooker uh, game were thrown into a back of a Saracen tank, taken to Hasten Street police station and held there. That, that was about, eight o'clock at night, held there till one, two in the morning. That very next day, I kind of tried for a job in the post office. I'd already done the first examination and my sister was home from Canada with her firstborn child. Anyway, about two o'clock in the morning, they, you know, it's actually some of the things that went on that night. It was, it was, it was almost like, you know, watching, you know, the two Ronnies, the crack, anything. So the gates opened, they let us out. And I see my mother and my aunt and my sister. And my mother and aunt were kind of, they, 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 this is, it wasn't normal, but it was, it happened a lot where people were just arrested and taken away for questioning. But my sister was very upset and said to me on the way home to, to the house, you know, are you in the IRA? Are you? She, 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 she didn't, she, she'd come from Canada. You better not be in the IRA. Blah, blah, blah. So the next morning I had to go for an interview at the Royal Post Office, Royal Mail. And instead of going to the, the interview, my sister took me to Canada House at Lower North Street and sponsored me to Canada. And that was uh, and five months later, after whatever, I was in Canada. And that's, that's how it all happened. And things were tough then in the north of Ireland. The, 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 the war was on, and it was 1973, and things weren't good. And I came to Canada, and that's it. That's how it happened. And you, you, you grew up in the, in the Divis Flats, um, which is... I suppose when we looked down, when we look up from down here, was, there was a British army base on the roof during the conflict. Can you take us back to those early years before you headed for Canada and life in Belfast? 
the BBC once reported that the Divis Flats was the worst housing project in Europe. It, it was tough. It was tough. Uh, it was not meant for families. It was not meant for big, large Catholic families. There was the house. It was conditioned for poor. The, the lifts, you know, I don't say that word too often living in Canada. The elevators never worked. The back stairs were broken. Uh, there was, there was, you know, we've had people, you know, young Frank Rountree wearing a Celtic shirt. I, you know, I was there the, the, on, on Easter weekend, was killed by a rubber bullet. The, the, the British Army base is on top of the Devils Tower, which is still there. Uh, it wasn't the greatest place to be brought up in, but I say this, good people lived in the Devils Flats and good people came from the Devils Flats. And the sense of community when we have our own little houses where we lived before, that was all kind of gone. But, uh, and people were kind of hoodwinked to do this. You know, I'm not going to point fingers at the, who it was that kind of cajoled the people to get in there. But it was, a, it was a social housing nightmare for to ask people to go in and live in these, you know, the, the dampness and to live in that Divis Flats was unbelievable. I, I lived in, I, we lived facing what would be Divis Street, which is continuation of the Falls Road. I, we've had, I, I remember CS gas cameras coming through our front window. You know, it's, it, was, it was tough, it was tough. But good people lived there. Good people lived there. And good people came from there. And that's, uh, and, you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful I was brought up in the Divis Flats. Taught me a lot. Taught me a lot about, you know, uh, to be wary of people living in social housing and around the world. And I see what's happening in Gaza. Not that we had anything what's happening in Gaza, but uh, people have to be treated like human beings. Government government didn't do the job in the 1960s and 70s for the people of Divis. Yeah, and when you you did leave, Hugo, um, did you miss it? I did. I I, I missed. Look, what do you miss? You miss your family. And uh, I miss, I miss my friends growing up because I came to a country where my sister <laughs> was trying to get me friends. You know, oh, I've got a little friend, you know, right away, I, my sister got me into playing soccer and I got to meet a couple of people. I got to meet, a, you know, a few Scottish people from the old country and a few kids uh, of Northern Irish parents and Southern Irish parents. But, but you do, you, you do miss, you do miss that. You do this sense of community. That's where you come from. That's part of you until, until you pass. That's always going to be a part of you, Divis. And I'm, you know, we didn't even call it Divis. We just called it the Flats. If you just, if you anybody just say from the Flats, and that's that's it. And now, what's great going on Facebook is to see guys that younger than you, you know, growing up, you know, sending you all kinds of pictures, and you're you're kind of in the background or whatever. But it was, yeah, I did miss it. Yeah, that's I'm, I've never been asked that question before, Andrew. You know, I you I do miss it. I, I do, I'm not, I don't miss it. Completely, but I do miss that sense of community. Yeah, yeah. And, and was it was it a culture shock to be in Toronto? One hundred percent. First of all, the weather. The weather was the first culture shock because uh, the summer over here is a summer. You know, we just going into our first long weekend of the year. You can you can get a suntan here. You can get a suntan here all year. You'd be lucky if you get a suntan living in living in the north of Ireland. Uh, I did. Yeah, it was a big shock, and of course. Coming to automobiles here where everything is bigger and better and, you know, and, you know, for all that you miss food wise from home, the one thing that they do really well in North America is make a good hamburger here. And, 
you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, everything. I've had one or two. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a big shock. It was a big shock. But my sister, my sister, she got me working immediately, and that was it. And, you know, her husband Rob, everything was good. She had a couple of kids, and it was it was good. And then my brother followed. My brother Frank and his wife. He just got married, and my brother John. So most of us were all here. I only have one brother, Tommy, who stayed at home, and and that, that was it. That was it. Immigration has been in our blood for a long time. So, like so many Irish, and the, the diaspora is, I suppose, the Irish diaspora is like the Celtic diaspora. It's, it's, it's spread throughout the world. And I suppose as the world gets smaller now with technology, you know, it is nice that you can, as you say, check out Facebook and do calls like this. And I'm sure it doesn't feel now as far away as it, as, as it once did. No, and I, I have a lot of good people, a lot of good friends here from County Louth. In fact, one of the first times I ever met you, remember I put you onto a girl who I thought was from Drakkana and she turned out, she says, oh, I don't want to talk to him. He's from Drakkana. I'm from Dundalk. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. You remember that, yeah. <laughs> no, even when I know you county does it avoid. Uh, so it's, look, I have a lot of good friends here from, and, you know, when, when we, when I always go home, uh, you know, I can remember going home one time in the 80s with my sister. Uh, and we went, we, we finished up in the dock. And when we got out of the car, uh, we parked, I think, around at, uh, uh, near the Adelphi Hotel. Uh, we met more people from Belfast in the 1980s in Dundalk than you'd meet uh, in, in Belfast because most of them had settled there for other reasons, right, Andrew? Yeah, well, a lot of people did, did move down. Um, there, was, there, was, there was actually a, a camp, a refugee camp, just out the road from me in Gormstown. Back in back in the seventies, so when people you know think about like my son goes up to Belfast regularly now, and I have to remind him it wasn't always us. When I started going to Belfast first in the late eighties for gigs in the arts college, to go for fish supper was was a journey, and you, you might be stopped twice, and then to get back, to, you know, to get back then with the fish supper for the band, to get back to the college was was and Belfast was 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 a was a ghost town after dark. You know, yeah. it's great. It's great to see it now taking off and doing so well. And hopefully now after the pandemic, it's it's it, it's ahead of us down here. It's back open, and hopefully it thrives, as I'm sure it will. Before we move out of the Divis, um, you were in a documentary about, I think it's called "Alive in the Divis Flats." Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, my journey over here in Canada, I've got to meet a lot of people, a lot of people who uh, artists. Extremely talented. I got to know a friend of mine who uh, had made a documentary movie out of, she wrote a book. She wrote like a coffee table book about uh, people's journeys in Canada. But the stories she would tell in the book were not the stories of immigration. She'd tell stories of their lives before uh, getting to Canada, before, you know. And she had all kinds of people in there. Colin Wilkinson, the singer, all kinds of people. And she, she kind of, chronologically did it from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all the people who come to Canada. And she asked me to be in it because, you know, and and she, she had to tell a story. She had to tell a story about, you know, whatever. Anyway, the story that I told was the night that Dana won the Eurovision Song Contest. I don't know if you were alive in those days, Andrew. Were you alive in Andrew? Well, anyway, it was 1970. and, and my, I, I, I wasn't, but I, I was certainly in the planning. So in those days... I, we really only had Eamon Andrews on the television, The Bachelors on TV, and Dave Allen and Val Dunigan. That's all we had in Ireland as, as being a, a, a superstar. And of course, Eurovision, which is 
you know, it's a really, you know, it's really gone downhill now. But in Eurovision, the seventies was big time. And there is this young girl from Derry, Donna, who, and everybody's, everybody's in watching the Eurovision Song Contest early May. And I can see my father watching it. She sings all kinds of everything. I can actually hear him saying, you know, she's going to do well. And while we're watching it, a knock comes to the door. Um, as the knock comes to the door, my mother goes, I goes down to the door and it's one of the Haggerty's, Pat Haggerty. And I said, he says, is your mommy in? I go and get my mother. My mother goes down and she says, turn that television off. Mrs. Haggerty's dead. Now my mother was kind of the, the lady, one of the ladies in the, in the divis who would go and prepare the dead before they were taken to the undertaker, uh, you know, where she'd get her body prepared, bring the linens over uh, and all that stuff. Right. And I never got to see, you know, I think I read a couple of whatever, sent to bed, going to mass the next morning. Everybody's on their toes. Everybody's going, did you see Eurovision last night? What happened? Ireland won. I never got to see Dana win the Eurovision Song Contest. So it was little stories like that that she wanted in. Anyway, she made kind of a movie of that. Uh, the, the movie was called Canada, which is the uh, indigenous word for Canada. A few people saw it. And then she said, she, they told her, you know, talk to that guy. He might be an interesting character. So she asked me. She followed me for almost eight months. And I said to her, like, what's going on here? She said, well, I, I'm looking at you. you. You're working hard. How come you've never been discovered? Da, 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 whatever. Then one day she came to the radio station. She said to me, uh, I want you to speak about your sister. My sister had passed away in 1983. You took me to Canada. And I spoke about her. And then I spoke about Davis. And I got pretty emotional of how I thought the church and other people, you know, hoodwinked the people to move into Davis. Now I got, I guess I got pretty emotional. And she phoned me the next day and said, look, the movie's not about you anymore. The movie's about Divis. It's about living, because I just researched what the Divis flats are. She said to me, I need to talk to somebody not in your family who lives in Toronto uh, from the Divis. I said, there's nobody here from Divis. The only guy you're going to get is a guy who lives in London, Ontario, about three hours southeast of here. His name is Jim Geddes. I didn't tell her Jim's story. She went to see Jim Geddes and she came back. She got, she got on the phone. I could almost tell, you know, she was still upset. You didn't tell me Jim's story. Jim had a, a nine-year-old brother killed by a plastic bullet called Stephen Geddes. So I, I figured out where she was going with the story about Devis. And I said, look, you need to get a perspective on this. You need to get, she wasn't really concerned about how you have to have maybe both sides of the story. And she got both sides of the story. And that he, this other guy, Stephen Armstrong, who is a lecturer here at a, at a local university, and he tells about how people uh, from the other side, how they were not hoodwinked in to move in to living conditions like that. People from Sandy Row, Shanker Road, East Belfast, how they stood firm. They stood firm and said, no, you're not building that. You're going to build houses. And so that's, that's a part of the story. And then there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a catch at the end of the, at the end of the, the at the end of the thing. But the, the Alive from the Divis Flats is really about, it's about, I guess a little bit about what I do, but it's about uh, social housing and how people were treated and about the Divis Flats experience. Can, is that on YouTube or? It's not, but she still has it. Uh, it's been shown. I actually showed it one time at the, at, uh, the convention, the first convention at San Francisco, Richard, the late Richard McKenna. And it just been released then. It won an award at the Belfast Homecoming Festival. And, uh, I, I've talked to her. I've talked to her. She's still keeping it, she's still keeping it close to her chest. So maybe one of these days she will release it and, you know, but it, it's just a bit stark on how, 
uh, what people had to live through uh, in the Divis Flats uh, complex. Yeah, and as as we said there, um, Hugo, you left your family and friends behind in Belfast. I'm sure it was a relief, probably at times, to get away from the conflict and how bad things were going to get. And you you were gone a good few years before, I suppose. The worst um, memory for many people will be the hunger strikes when Republic prisoners were looking for political status after refusing to wear prison uniforms or do prison work. And your cousin, Joe McDonald, was one of the 10 young men who died in one of the darkest moments in Ireland's history. How does that affect someone so far away? Uh, when it happened, we were, my sister who's still alive at the time, uh, we were in constant contact. He has a brother here, my cousin Patsy, and they'd gone home after about 30 days. Uh, when he was in the hunger strike, it, it, it preyed on our minds. We were all distraught over here, and uh, you know, because what could we do? And then my sister made a decision, and one of the great decisions of my, I wouldn't say great decisions. Uh, one, one thing that I'm very grateful for, she said, "I'm going home when he died, and you're coming with me." And I went, "What?" And I went, and "Was I ever glad I went?" Uh, it's just, it's uh, Joe. Joseph, I, I, we knew him as Joseph. Joseph, uh, growing up, people have asked me, what was he like growing up? He was your cousin. It's your cousin. He was the biggest uh, guy for making a joke ever. He was a constant wind-up. That's all he was, a constant. He was just a regular bloke. But to be the first guy with a family to give up his life, it, it, was, it was crushing at the time. It was crushing at the time. But it's a seminal moment in Irish history. And I remember him, I remember him just as a human being. That's what I want to remember him as because he gave his life for his country. It's, you know, to his family who are still alive, sister, two sisters at home, Eilish and Maura, and he has two brothers, Paul, three, Paul, Hugo, and Frankie, and his brother Patsy over here. He's never far from our lips. And just as I spoke about our first story there, Keep him in. I, I, I keep him in my heart all the time. I always think about him. I always think about him all the time because you know that's it was it was crushing. It was crushing, and, and those were Andrew. You know those were very. And when I tell people about that, when he died, when we got to Milltown Cemetery, because as you know, the funeral cortege was broken up. There was a gun battle. You know, broke the funeral. It's like that was forty years ago. That's like, come on. And when we got the Milton group, they called for the piper. The piper had been arrested. They called for the bugler. The bugler had been shot. And Joe McDonald, as far as I know, is probably the only hunger striker who didn't have the last post played at because of what happened that day on the Andersonstown Road outside St. Agnes's Chapel, where, you know, the RUC and British Army were lying in wait after uh, he was saluted. It was, it was, well, I think back of that, you know, you're, you're a bit younger and you, you can go through it. It was, it was, it's emotional. Uh, but I, I, I remember him as, as Joseph McDonald from Ramon Gardens in Irishstown, uh, son of Robbie and Eilish, Eilish McDonald and all his family. And he, he lost his sister who would have been the age of my younger brother, John at the time, Bernadette to leukemia. And I think, I think, just think of, because he, he, you know, when, when Bernadette was born, we were all up because they lived in the new houses up the road. And he was always very caring for Bernadette. And when that happened, I, I think about him, he was, eh, it's just, it's, it's, it was, it's a seminal moment in Irish history. 
and I remember my cousin. I remember him fondly. That's all I can say. And when you're leaving, when you're leaving Belfast to head back to Toronto, then it, it must—I don't know if you can remember—but the, the feeling must have been very mixed. Well, and a bit scary. Uh, I was with my sister downtown. She had brought her young son home at the time, and uh, a guy who I knew I went to school with uh, said hello to me and took me to the side and said to me, "Hugo, when are you leaving?" I said, "Well, we're leaving in a couple of days." He said, "Yeah." I said, "There's look." And in those days, what they used to do was they put pictures, take pictures of FIFA Cortezes and, and put them in shops uh, in other parts of Belfast so people could, you could be fingered out. Uh, it's a sad thing to think about. Uh, but Ireland's on a new track. And uh, I, I think a new Ireland's just around the corner. And hopefully, hopefully that can happen a lot sooner than we think. And um, you did go back to Toronto and you, Plowed yourself into the entertainment game, and it's been uh, a journey for you, which has led to over forty years in the business. Hugo, madness, madness. I don't know. It's like, how does that happen? How does that happen? It happened working in a car plant, uh, trying to get a soccer team together. A friend of mine says, "What are we going to do?" Typical. We'll have a dance. It's the early eighties. Get together, have a bit of a thing, and it came easy to me, DJing, MCing, entertaining. Long before I started singing. Well, I was kind of singing. I would sing, like, you know, not, not ever getting paid for a gig. I would, like, do it like a jam session, you know, played guitar very badly. How it really kicked off was, in the, in the, in the 80s in those days here in Toronto, the place was full of nannies. Everybody was in, they're all nannies looking for work. It's not like nowadays where, uh, you know, there's a big influx of people, you know, young people here uh, to Canada. But there was a load of nannies there. You know, the, the boys followed on after that. And there was a place called Paddy's Place, which opened up and this Paddy Canavan, a Canadian guy of Irish and Scottish parents, uh, through a girl from Dublin, said, we're going to try this crazy night. What's a crazy night? And it was, it was like a game show, madness, bingo, getting people to do stuff. And that's how that started. That's how that, that crazy people still talk about that. And that went right through the early nineties. And this is a long weekend. And usually the, the crazy nights were good on the Sunday night of a long weekend. They'd start about 10 o'clock and go through to five, six in the morning. It was crazy. Uh, laws over here are a little bit more lax than you are at home there, Andrew. You know, you could, you know, fall to get an over. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it, it I, I've seen many nights at this Paddy's place. You know, it, it, it was, it was it's a, a two-shower event. You know, a, a shower to get there and a shower before you got into bed. You just soaked with sweat and smoke. It was an incredible experience. There's, I tell you, Vegas is Vegas and Paddy's place. All that get together is just the same. It's just it's 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 wonderful madness. Wonderful madness getting together and nobody nobody getting out of order. It's incredible. That's that's us. And up that, that um, those forty years, you were named, I believe, one of those years as Irish Person of the Year in Toronto. <laughs> Stop! Stop! <laughs> yeah, I was for for being on the radio. I I, I took over a guy's radio show in nineteen eighty eight, and uh, uh, so my show, I went live with the show, and it continues to this day. It's an hour show on a Sunday morning. I have listeners from all over the world, and that's uh, so I was honoured for that. And, uh, it was sort of it's a lovely, it's a lovely honor. I think you recorded one from Vegas, did you? Oh yes, yes. And the next, I've asked you a few times, but you're usually hungover. Well, yeah. I want to say that I just like to go out and see the, the touristy things in Las Vegas. 
I'm a very sociable person. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, so the next time we're in Vegas, uh, you promise me that at 7 o'clock on the Sunday morning, you meet me at the fountain at the pool at the West Kid, and uh, I'll put you live on the air. How's that? That could be dangerous at that time in the morning in Las Vegas. <laughs> Even John Lennon didn't show up one year, so that's, that's how bad it could be. So. And, and other highlights there, as you say, you've been on the radio for, and that's 23 years now you've been on the radio, but you also played the late, great Joe Dolan on stage in the play The Night Joe Dolan's Car Broke Down. How did that come about? What? Oh, that was, that was, it was, it was scary. Very scary to, to be asked to do this. That we have a local theatre group here in Toronto called the Toronto Irish Players. Been going for over 42 years. And they usually do the classics, you know, Yeats, you know, John B. Keane, you know, Juno and the Paycock, stuff like that. They, they, they do a lot of classic plays, but they decided this year to do something which was running in the Getty Theatre at the same time. A guy called Podrick McIntyre had wrote this story about Joe Dolan. Not really Joe Dolan's about, it's the, the, the play is about people aren't who they really say they are. And so the next thing you know, they've, they've told me six months previous, you're going to be Joe Dolan. Don't tell anybody. So sure enough, I can't tell anybody. I got a book off that this six week, seven week period that, you know, maybe three months with rehearsal. And uh, one of the things about that was my son, who was doing a good bit of acting at the time, he was mad that I didn't tell him I was going to be Joe Dolan. But the relief was, and one of the nice things about that play was he was on stage with me. Uh, It's an incredible, you know yourself, Andrew, uh, being behind a microphone in front of an audience can be a daunting task. You know, sometimes when you, when you get to, you know, it's, it's not everybody's built to do that. As I say to people, one of the hardest things in the world to do is to fry bacon in the nude. Have you ever tried that? I can't say I have. Well, that's a very hard thing to do. But well, don't be so, trying it either. <laughs> one of the other hard things to do is to give somebody a microphone and say, just be yourself. Well, you're not really yourself. You're just, you're a little bit outside yourself. You kind of, you kick it up a notch. And when you're, when you're in front of a, uh, you know, an audience in a theater, it's a whole different experience. It's a whole, you gotta, but the one thing that carried me through was that the people on stage with me, backstage, Doing the sound and lighting, they all want you to be the best, and that's that. that that's that, that's winning the lottery. And it was we had a sold out performance. Sold every night, sold out. Joe Dolan, me in the white suit, kicking out the hits, and I'll never forget it. In fact, some people still ask me to do a bit of Joe Dolan, but I'll never forget that experience. The night Joe Dolan's car broke down. There's a great line in the play, and I'm going to use an expletive here where Joe appears to these two guys in this pub in County Cavan. And the guy says, do you, they wake up after drinking and doing a bit of drugs. He says, do you believe that, Joe Dolan? And the guy, the main character, the horse, Munley, that's his name. He says, Joe, Joe fucking Dolan. And that's, that's what Joe meant to us. Would you agree, Andrew? Well, he's a bit before my time, but I tell you, I, I remember going to my aunts and uncles and, uh, the Joe Dolan albums would be on in the house, and uh, I think Joe's one of the he's one of the iconic Irish stars, but a kind of a star in Ireland. You know, he, he, I don't think he, he was the international star. Well, he was a star in Ireland, but he was a big star in Europe, and he played Vegas. But he was—you're right—he was one of us. He was one of us, and you know those two big hits written by Albert Hammond, "Make Me an Island," 
and Good Looking Woman, you know, they are distinctively Joe Dolan songs. Nobody, nobody sings them songs. Nobody else, Joe, and there's nobody else can sing them. But when you hear that first line, take me and break me and close all your windows. That's Joe Dolan. Wow, she's a good looking woman. That's Joe. Oh, my. That's- oh my. <laughs> and and also oh, yeah. on this kind of journey, as we said, uh, you know, you've you've become a familiar face in Las Vegas, but you also emceed for the Celtic FC Foundation dinner in New York, which is which is a great fundraiser. But sadly, a lot of working class Celtic fans, it's stay so it's 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 the way priced out of us. So wouldn't it be great if there was two one for those who can't afford it and then one because there's some been some great guests over there and just from people, the feedback I'm getting is wonderful, but I wish I could go. 100%. I agree. And I thought about doing one here in Toronto uh, on a slightly smaller scale because what we want, Andrew, is this is what we want as Celtic supporters and fans. We want to touch and be among those people who step on the Celtic Park. We just want to hear them. That's what we want to do. You know, I've been lucky enough to be with Martin O'Neill on stage and Neil Lennon. And, and Rod Stewart right in front of you. But that, that's what we want. And, you know, it, I, I think it can happen. And that's the nice thing about Vegas, where, you know, you walk to the toilet with Bertie Ald, or, or, you know, you go to the drugstore with George McCluskey. You know, you know where are you going? Oh, I'm going over That's there. a chemist for all the people in Glasgow. <laughs> He's not going to buy drugs, George McCluskey. Do you know, you know what I mean? You, you know, you want to go, you want to go to the chemist. You know, that, that's what you go. You go and Tommy Boyd. Tommy Boyd said to me one time, uh, are you going to the mall? I said, yeah, can I share a taxi with you? I'm in the same taxi with the captain of Celtic. What? But, you know, Billy McNeil. You know, we went to church one year. We were staying at the, uh, I think it was the, the Frontier. And we went and we went to Mass, the five o'clock Mass on Saturday evening. And we're walking back from Mass. And I look back and John Clark and Billy McNeil are talking to my two sons at 15 years old. What? Are you kidding me? That's, that's, that's what we want. That's, we want to be up close and personal. I want whether they. I want to hear that story. I just want to talk to you. That's all I want to do. You're right. Let's let's get one that's reasonably priced, and then it'd be nice. So yeah, that's that's the great thing about Vegas because you can you can bump into to these legends. You know, I've been lucky enough. I I've interviewed a good few of them, but I I think you know there's, there is special moments. I remember we brought Billy McNeil and and Tommy Gamel over for uh, a lunch, a charity lunch, and a, a dinner the night before. And I picked the two of them up at the airport, Dublin airport. I'm driving down the road and you kind of have to pinch yourself. I've got these, the legends of Lisbon in my car. And, and Billy, you know, there's no one else in the car. He doesn't have to impress anyone. And he's asking as we go into draw, what's that? And he said, this looks like a lovely area. And I says, yeah, yeah, it's nice. And, and then I said, look, I said, I've just got a call from the radio. They want to know, we'll just go on and for a quick interview. Yeah, no problem. And I brought them onto the, to the, straight to the radio. They'd done the lunchtime show, the local radio. Nothing was a problem to them. And it's funny, when, when, when Billy passed away, they, they, they replayed the interview on the radio, which was, which was lovely because it was lovely because we were, there was myself and Hilly, who's our chairman. Tommy Gamble and Billy McNeil was the panel on the radio show. So for me to share that was just, it's, it's very, very special. And I think that it's probably something that's maybe getting lost now with social media because a lot of the players are probably afraid to go into, you know, to mix with the fans in case someone puts something up or somebody says something. So yeah, hopefully down the road we can, we can have more events because the old school are dying off 
And I always say, you know, the like the likes of Tommy Boyd, the Tosh McKinleys, who played in the nineties, I think they're kind of the last breed because now, you know, if you want to bump into a player, like I Hen- Henrik's playing um a show in the Hydro with Martin O'Neill, John Haslam, Chris Sutton. But if you're at the back of the Hydro, it's probably going to be a great show. But when you love to be able to just walk up to him and say hello. 100 percent That's a great that's a great memory. Great good story there of Tommy Gallagher. Yeah, a lovely story. Now that's a memory I have, but um you're from Belfast, you support Celtic, and Celtic play a very important part in many people's lives in Belfast. You know, what are your early memories of supporting the team and maybe travelling to Glasgow to see the boys? Well, my father, like all fathers, forbid us as children to go and watch Irish League football because of what happened to Belfast Celtic in 1948. And, but that's not to say we did go to see local football because at Gravner Park, where the distillery played, wasn't far away. And I remember actually seeing Bertie Peacock play there for Coleraine. I'm thinking he played for Celtic. But as a kid, as a nine-year-old kid, uh, my brother, my oldest brother, Tommy, had left Belfast. And there's no secret. Uh, it was kind of a shotgun wedding. And in those days, that that, that was frowned upon in the 60s. It was like, you know, it was, well, it was very bad for both families. Anyway, he moved to uh, Canvas Lang in Glasgow. And the word was coming through that you know, the baby was going to be born. And so, anyway, the word comes through, the baby's born on, uh, it's coming, and we're all going to go over see the baby. The baby was born on the 4th of August, 1966. My brother Frank and me and an aunt, not really my aunt, just passed away. She was my Irish aunt, Julie Brannigan, and my late sister, Lily, and her husband, and her boyfriend at the time, uh, Paddy Murray. We're all going to go over to see the baby. I didn't know Celtic were playing preseason football at times when I was only a kid. We get over, he was in Bells Hill Hospital, for all the people who know that, which is a maternity hospital at that time. I wasn't allowed to go up because I was a kid. And after we come down on that Saturday morning, my brother Tommy says to me, We're going to see Celtic. And that's what in the lottery for a nine year old. And then I go to see Celtic at Celtic Park. And not only do I see Celtic, not only do I see Manchester United in a preseason friendly, but for that's my first time ever seeing Celtic. And for anyone who has had this passion for Celtic, you know the jerseys are greener, the white is the white of the jersey is whiter. Everything is magnified. It's like it's like a wonderland to see Celtic in person. You've only seen these guys on TV, maybe in black and white or in the newspaper. But to see it in front of you as your own eyes, it's technicolor. And they're playing against George Best, Nobby Styles, Bobby Chart, and Dennis Law. What? I didn't realize it at the time. And they win 4-1. But what makes it so special? That's the start of the magical season. Because that might have been their first preseason game. Their last game ends at the National Stadium in Portugal when they win the European Cup. And that's, for me, I'm one of the luckiest guys ever. The only thing that I wasn't lucky enough to not to be at that final. But three guys, three local guys were there. We've seen them on television, jumping over the moat. But that's, and that's where my story begins. I I, I have pictures of me as a five, six-year-old with my little monkey hat on, my scarf around my snake belt on. 
And, but that's where my journey begins for Celtic and nothing, nothing. And I can, just like I'm talking to you today, Andrew, that memory is as vivid in my brain as ever. And I take that to my grave. And that's where my passion and, you know, undying support for this team, that's where it starts. August 6th, 1966, Celtic Park, Glasgow. Incredible. And you also were lucky enough to be in Hamden the night we played Leeds United. Is that correct? I actually beaked off school. For those people who beaked or mitched or whatever it was, I took it off. My mother gave me the blessing. My father wasn't too happy. I made the story with guys that you know. One of them you know. You know Jim Mervin very well, don't you? I do know Jim, yeah. Do you know Jim's nickname? His nickname is Gonga. That's his nickname. Gonga Mervin, Jim McKee, Kipper Walsh, and his girlfriend, Irene Mervin, who is Jim's sister. We make the trek on the boat. I meet my cousins. I meet now a Sinn Féin councillor who was on the boat, Fra McCann, uh, who sits in the legislature. We're on the boat. We go over and another magical night, 15th of April, 1970. Uh, sorry, there was one more guy on that trip, Paddy McVeigh, the local milkman, 134,000. And I can see Bobby Murdoch jumping, arms raised. And who was I to think that I was going to meet Bobby Murdoch in Vegas all those years later? What a night. What a night. And the, the sad thing was, on the way out, someone stole my famous monkey hats, little beanie that I had, which was knitted for me. Somebody lifted it off my head. I got separated from the crowd. But the rule was, meet at the cross. Meet at that Glasgow cross. And that's where I met them all. And I thought, maybe as the 12 or 13-year-old, we were all going to a hotel. We finished up in Glasgow Airport for a three hours kip before we caught the boat back home. But it's a memory I'll never forget. But it was worth taking three or four days off school. Unbelievable. And you know, you're, you're, you're going to miss Celtic when, when you travel to Canada. But Canadian clubs have played a huge part in getting the beam, getting the games beamed in to um, supporters clubs over there. And also they were involved heavily in the setting up of the North American Federation, which we all enjoy. At the conventions, not just in Vegas, but there's there's been a few. One of one I went to outside Vegas was the one in Windsor, which which Sandra, my wife, always talks about and says it was probably one of the best weeks of our life. The the effort and the entertainment that was put on that week was unbelievable. And I also got to go to Detroit to share two of my passions, boxing. I got to the Cronk Gym, which is gone now, and I got to see. I got to go to Motown. And uh, I got to sing. Wow. In, I got to sing in Motown, and there's not there's not many I, people can say that from Drada. That's what I was about to ask you. Did you get to sing? Into I the, did. did get, yeah. Did you get to sing into the ceiling? I got microphone? to sing into the ceiling, and so did Sandra. I was in. We were the lads with the four tops, and the girls with the Supremes. <laughs> and I had my hand on little Stevie Wonder's piano when I was singing, and and I can't really sing it back. You go, you know, I'm better at moment. <laughs> what did you, what did you say? I think we sang. I think we sang "Reach Out." Oh. I think I think so, and I think the girls sang "Baby Love." It was. I mean, I still. And little Joe was with us uh, from from Bering, and Joe's passed away. Kevin Bridges, the comedian, was with us. This is before Kevin was famous. Um, <laughs> Nasha from the Paul Gillespie from the Brazenhead, Celine Gillespie. Um, I'm just trying to think who else was with us. There was a few others, but I just can't remember their names. There was only a small group of us. Stephen McManus, who was with us, because he was, he was running the convention. But it was, 
just to to to, to get to, to go to Detroit and and the, the Motown was and to see it's only two houses like it's not a big yeah and that's a, but the Kronk's gym was was a huge highlight and the fact now that it's it's closed down it's and I met I met people that always think of Tommy Hearns when when but talk about the Kronk or Donald Curry but I met a guy called Milton McCrory he was oh, a world yeah. wealth he was a world wealth away champion. And to, to get a con- and I, I recognised him and I'm to him. He was he was outside because the the Kronk gym is downstairs and and the door says this has led many to fame and many to pain. That's what's wrote on the door. And it's it's like it, you know it's a shithole. It's it, you know, like it's not one of these modern gyms. It was it was blood, sweat, and tears. But I, I'd said to Milton McCrory when, we, when we're going in, I said, "Excuse me, are you Milton McCrory?" Because he looked really fresh. He's a coach now and. He, he he's holding court for a lot of people and he goes, I told you someone had recognised me. And it was, you know, and I'm going, wow, the world champion. Got a picture with him. And he, cause I remember as a kid watching his two fights against Colin Jones in Reno, Nevada. So yeah, magic. It'd be magic. But, but back to the, the, to the, um, supporters clubs. So like, it's probably undocumented that like how these clubs, maybe started and how they grew I think the Carney was the first one wasn't it that was the, they call that the mother club yeah. but yes. to what it is now that like it it's amazing the network now because I was going over to the Philadelphia's I was going over to do Selegay M in Philadelphia at the fail at the day hold in, in January February every year and I missed me flight due to me yesterday being out of day because I got a new passport and I put on Facebook I'm traveling to I'm traveling to New York. I got a flight to New York. Missed me flight to Philly. Uh, if anyone can pick us up, that's going to Philadelphia in the you know tonight. I'll be in. I should be in New York for seven o'clock American time. Switched my phone off. Got on the plane. Had a few drinks, maybe one or two too many. Got over, and I'm sitting in the baggage hall, and I get a tip on the shoulder, and it's Brock McVeigh from Portadown, and Brock says. Come on with me, he says. We'll go. He said, We'll go over a few points. You can stay in my house. And Joe's driving down in the morning. And just, you know, like the, the, the camaraderie and the network is brilliant. And I never knew, like, you know, when I left my house that morning, that I was going to end up in the Bronx that night in an Irish bar with a load of people I'd never met before and I'm still in contact with. So, yeah, the, the Celtic family is definitely brilliant. And especially in North America, it's such a, you know, welcoming place to go. Well, that that kind of just leads me into Andrew, which would be the next continuation of that story. Is where people of people who are immigrants uh, to uh, another country are always connected to the land of their birth. I, I'm I, the first thing I am is an immigrant. I'm, an, I'm a Canadian citizen, but I'm an immigrant. And the immigrant is always his hard strings are always a little bit, maybe more wound tightly. Than maybe the guy who lives in that country because of what he's left, and that's what Brock did to you. Brock believed that he should be helping out someone who comes from his country, and that's that's instilled in us in our DNA as an immigrant to help that person. And that that was, you know, the Bramley Celtic Club, the Toronto Celtic Club, Whitby Club, all these different clubs, Burlington, Montreal, all and in the states, San Francisco, Kearney, New York. You know, Rocky Sullivan's, all these different people, Houston, no matter where they are, no matter Dallas, with Cleveland, all over North America and around the world, Melbourne, Sydney, they have that connection to home. What is the connection? The connection is, of course, you come from Scottish Irish, but even what more unites us even more is green and white. 
the hoops of Celtic Football Club. And that's, that's, it, it, that, that goes without saying. It goes without saying. It's spot the hoops. I've instilled in my children, spot the hoops. No matter where we are, spot the hoops. Because then you have an instant connection with that person. You, you may not, sometimes you may not even speak the same language as you, but that's your connection. And look, there's blue shirts, there's red shirts, there's yellow shirts and all kinds of shirts. And there's a couple of other hoop shirts, but there's really only one hoop shirt. It's an iconic shirt. It's, 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 that's, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like a shooting star. <laughs> Boom. That's us. And that's, that's what, so it doesn't surprise me that Brock McFade did that. That's what we do for immigrants. That's what we do for people who are in our country. We help them out. Yeah. And it's funny you should say spot the hoops because other people look out for us as well because we, we recorded last, um, I think it was last Thursday night. We recorded the, the last week's podcast. Now I, I'd interviewed Tommy Sharon, but then, I go into the studio with Ron and, and we put the show together, the intros, the outros and, and whatnot. And we have a small recording studio here. And then I came back up to the office while he was mixing the, the podcast. And I went down to get a cup of coffee. And I had, uh, I think I, I must have had one, a Celtic top on or, or a more than 90 minutes top. And there was a guy I'd never seen in the building before and he was sitting having a cup of coffee. And he said to me, Celtic. And I went, yeah, yeah. And I says, who are you? And his name is Mahood. And I said, where are you from? He says, he says, I'm originally from Libya, but I've been living here since I was four. His parents are doctors in the town. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, boy, have you set a business up? Because we're in a, in a, in a, a non-profit center that we, we share with um, local businesses, small businesses. And I says, no, he says, I'm just, I'm just writing a hot desk. I'm studying for my third law degree. Third law, not third, <laughs> third law degree. So uh, I so I thought no no and then he says to me the reason why I noticed the Celtic short he says was he says the solidarity you showed the fans showed with Palestine he says he says and since then he says I always look out for Celtic's results and, and amazing like you know um, here here that, here, here. And, and, and and I went wow and then uh, he was only here for one one evening because he was obviously he's got his cramming for exams but he said I. I was leaving late and I said, look, can you lock up? Because set the alarm and you got a key. And he said, yeah. He says, I'll have, I'll be back maybe next week for a night as well. And I said, oh, well, hopefully I'll see you then. We can have a coffee and another chat. But yeah, it's, 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 it, we certainly, um, have left our mark, not just for the football, but I think the fans play such an important role with, with showing, uh, you know, solidarity. 100%. It's humbling. Yeah. I can, I, it's, it's, it's sometimes humbling. And, you know, what I try to tell people, you know, because you can get a bit fanatical at times about your team. That's, that's okay. It's emotion, right? But I, I don't know of any other credo from te- because on this side of the Atlantic, we've got NHL, NFL, NBA. We, we've got them all over here. Major League Baseball. We've got them all over here. It, 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 it's, it's big time sports over here. It's, you're talking about, you know, LeBron James, who's earning $123 million a year. It's, it's huge here, but our sporting franchise, the team that we support, was started on the credo of to help people less fortunate than us. I, I, I don't know any other team that that's their credo. That's, our, that, that, that's, that's in us. That's in us to do that. And that's what makes me proud and humble. And I can hear it in your voice. It's, it's, it's gratifying to hear that about that, that young guy from Libya. That's, that's who we are. And to support people less fortunate than us. That's what we do. That's what we do. So, you know, it's 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 wonderful. It's amazing, and it's humbling all at the same time. Well, this this podcast has brought us from 
from Drahada, where I'm sitting, to Toronto, where you're sitting. But you go over there as a young boy. How do you end up marrying a girl from Belfast called Geraldine? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to mention two words. Paul Anka. Uh, she came to meet a rich Canadian just like me. But Andrew, as you know, with your lovely son, <laughs> as you know, you can fight many things, but you can't fight love. You can't. You just can't find love. And I was, you know, I had a couple of girlfriends here. I, I was pretty lucky when, before I got married. I used to win everything until I got married. And, you know, I, I worked in a bank. And uh, uh, so, you know, you'd enter little things. And so every summer here, we have the thing called Canadian Ex- National Exhibition. And it's just, you know, it's, a, it's like a big fair that runs for, they have them all over North America. It's the, it's the fair. So what they do is they bring in big stars in the 70s. And in the 1970s, Big star here was Paul Anka, who's Canadian, of, you know, uh, I believe, uh, Arabian. He, 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 I think his parents are from Egypt or somewhere. Anyway, who read all those iconic songs in the 50s. But anyway, in the 70s, he made a bit of a comeback, having my baby, you know, one man, woman. He was, he was making a comeback. And I'd entered for tickets to see Paul Anka at the CNE, like 30, 40,000 seat venue. And I won tickets. And driving home, from this club that we all go to called the Four Ps. You can imagine what that was all about. And uh, I said to my girlfriend at the time, do you want to go see Paul Anka? Oh, I don't want to go see him. And I said to her friend in the back, do you want to go? She said, I'll go. And from that till now, that's that's where it happened. And uh, I've tried to get a contact with Paul Anka and maybe get my money back. And But uh, yeah. <laughs> So, so it all happened at a Paul Anka concert. So that's show business. Show business connected is so that that's how it happens. Yeah, she comes from, she's from the street off the Falls Road, Patton Street. Uh, and you know Jimmy O'Hara. You know Jim. You've met Jim many times at the conventions, right? Uh, Jim would have been her next door neighbor. So uh, her her brother was a pretty good Gaelic football player, played for Antrim, and a big Celtic supporter. Went to many early games, but uh, yeah. So, but. Uh, it's it's you know we may support other teams over here, but it's still Celtic. And three boys later, and some grand two grandchildren. Life is life is good for Hugo Strainy in Toronto, Canada. Hugo, you love music, you love Celtic, so I'm going to invite you now to climb into the Celtic Soul time machine, and you can take us back to a game and a gig you attended, and maybe one of each that you didn't attend, but you would have loved to be at. Okay, so do you want to start that? That's that's a lot of information. Now, what do you want first? Jump in that time machine and take us back to a game you are. Well, I, I, I want to, you know, I mentioned the first game I was ever at. I mentioned the Hammond game. I'm going to mention another game uh, that I was at. And that was, you were there. Uh, there's a couple, I, I went to the 1974 Scottish Cup final. Uh, first time let my son Ryan bringing him to Cleveland to see Celtic play Boca Juniors. But the 5-1 game where you give me a hard time uh, because you, I think you like my suit that I was wearing. You go, I always <laughs> like your suits. <laughs> but that, that and, and to see the Green Brigade to fly out, they flew out the flag of war. There was destiny that day, wasn't there, Andrew? That was destiny that game. Oh, fantastic day, yeah. And to figure out who's sitting beside me, who does John Andrews put beside me? And I went, oh my God, the late, great Tommy Doggerty. It, it's a fairy tale. 
It's a fairy tale for me. And I remember I bought it. It started out, it was pretty cool in the morning. And I brought kind of a, like a, like a, I'm not a top coat, but like a, like an overcoat to wear. And when I met Tommy Doherty, the first thing he says to me, I hope you fucking get the weather you're expecting, you know? <laughs> and that was it. He just ripped, he just ripped me up and down. And I said, I'm sitting beside Tommy Doherty here and we're winning 5-1. Can I tell you a quick story about that game? <laughs> you know, Sean, you know, Sean Mooney, the hoopy hound, right? You know, Sean. Yeah. So I've got the nose. I've got the nose, Sean. Wonderful guy. Great musician, by the way. Anyway, Sean tells me at that game, he has to get ready to go on field about 15 minutes before the end of the game. He has to be ready in the tunnel to go out and, you know, get the crowd all excited. Anyway, near the end of that game, as you know, Senderos was sent off for a very, very bad foul. Do you remember that? Anyway, while he's in the tunnel, right? There's something coming on the PA for the steward who's about to get him onto the field at the end of the field. And there's a bit of, there's a bit of chatter on the, on the, the walkie talkie. And Sean's with his outfit on, can't really understand. And the steward says to him, <laughs> you ready? As Sender Ross is coming up the tunnel, the steward says to Sean Mooney, and the cry was no surrenders. <laughs> <laughs> People make Glasgow, don't they? People, oh, the band is always great in Glasgow. But the five, the 5-1 game, the 5-1 game was, that was, oh, that was just, that was one word. That was sweet. sweet. And if there's a game that you didn't attend and you would love to have attended over those well, years in Toronto. Yes, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, and it only happened, what happened a few weeks ago in 2003. I, I, I've done a lot of weddings in my time and I have a book for this wedding on a Sunday, on a Sunday of all days. And I knew the people. I knew the, I knew the family well. It was in Hamilton, Ontario. And the last flight out for Seville was on a Sunday. And I had to do a wedding. And although Celtic were not victorious that day, that still burns a little deep for me to not to be among all those people. But I watched it and cried like everybody else. But Number seven, he's he. There's very few people who can carry a team on their back. He's a special guy, and I, I cried at the end of it. And that's the game. Although even something didn't win, that's the game. I regret not going to, and only because I had to do the right thing and do the wedding, and that was it. You know. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be in Seville, but my regret back then is that I was. I was too much of a party boy back then. And, um, there was certainly no, there were certainly very few pictures taken. And, you know, I think there's one picture of us in a pub the day after, after Seville. And it was only when the anniversary, the 18th year anniversary was, was last week. And I seen all these wonderful pictures on, on Facebook. And I said to me, mate, I says, have you any pictures? And he says, no, he says, I think I've only seen one of us in Seville. And he says, I think that might be the day after because he said, we just, we, we have, Oh, we were twenty four seven party people then, but yeah, I, I was down and I wrote a little piece because it was eight, eighteen years ago. Because I don't have any pictures to rub, so I just said I write a little piece and put it on the website. And I can't believe the reaction it's had, and the amount of people that have contacted me in the comments and everything. And what will probably come out of it will be we'll probably do something for the for the YouTube channel or the podcast because the memories people have sent me and people I don't know, like especially I, I couldn't believe the reaction on LinkedIn. Because a, a lot of people who I don't know that they'd be just kind of business contacts and they were sending stories and putting comments up. And it was, 
it was unbelievable because I suppose on Facebook there was just so much because everybody was posting up. This was a different platform and it was just the amount of comments and stories. And I've since emailed people and the stories they've told me are amazing. So hopefully we can... It's, it's very important that we start recording these things now because we didn't really have podcasts back then. You were alone on the mainstream media. It's very important for history to have these conversations in, in audio libraries. And Mark Borg sent me some stuff from the Cells for Change when the meetings were held in Dundalk and stuff he'd done on, on Irish radio. So I'm hoping that we can get that cleaned up. It's going to be hard, but we're hoping we can get it cleaned up and maybe put it back out because it's not in the public domain. Like books are, you know, it's great to walk into a library and see all these books. Yeah. We, and I think history was always really documenting the players and the uh, the team, you know, and the results and that. And maybe wasn't documenting the, the fans as much. And I think it's so important now that we get the fan stories down because there's some wonderful books out there, but it would be nice to have the fan story on audio or even visuals. You know, we just... Cause well, well, you know, that's ironic you should say that, Andrew, because look, this season, with, you know, which was filled with so much anticipation and promise, you know, I, one of the, the underlying factors is that the Celtic team playing on the park missed the fans. And it was so evident so evident that that fan base was a 12th man to get them over the line. And, you know, there's there's a lot of other factors. Yes, I'll, I'll agree there's a lot of other factors. I'm not going to get into that here. I'm, I'm not a manager or a coach or a football pundit. But that was a big thing. That was a big thing that that crowd was not there to will us on to victory. And that, that, that has to be a factor. It has to be. It has to be. Because, you know, we were... The team that won the league were a mediocre team. They were mediocre. We 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 had everything to do there. It just, just factors just got in our way. But we live to fight another day. Of course we do. Of course we do. And hopefully next season we'll re- regain our, our trophy and get our domestic yes. qualifications to the Champions League. Now listen, before we finish, you're still in my time machine. Take me back to a gig because you're the music man and take me back to a gig you'd like to have been at. Well, I'm going to tell you what, look, I've seen, I've been familiar, I've been lucky enough to be at a lot of great gigs and concerts. The second greatest show I ever saw in my life, and I wasn't a fan until I got there, was in 1984. And I was working night shift, and my brother-in-law came to me and said, I got tickets for this guy. Uh, I don't like that guy. And I went to see him, and he was three and almost four hours on stage. My hands were sore, clapping. Who was it? Bruce Springsteen. I knew you were going to say that. That was unbelievable. And now I'm I'm not a mad Bruce Springsteen fan, but I've seen a show from Broadway and what he talks about his family. But he's the real deal. He's the real deal, Bruce Springsteen. The greatest show I ever saw, and this might be a, and it happened, uh, my wife's sister had just come over after being yeah, uh, and look like a lot of con- you know you know what the gig experience is about. It's like a holiday. You need to be with the right people on the right time. It all needs to come together. It just didn't happen. It's like just things didn't. I uh, just this night, everything happened on this night. And she was coming over on her honeymoon. The wife, we were on dating. Get our tickets for a show. We got our tickets for the show on the way. We were going to a buffet for a four ninety five buffet here in Toronto with the town, town and country buffet, which is not there anymore. And while we're on our way to the gig, the news flash comes on at 5.30 that Elvis Presley has passed away. 
August 16th, 1977. We're on our way to see Sammy Davis Jr. I seen Sammy Davis Jr. the night Elvis Presley died. I found out since he was a big, there were two great friends. That show was the greatest show ever I seen. Bruce Springsteen was a very, very, very close second. So there you go. So I seen Mr. Bojangles the night Elvis passed away, but the boss is still, he's, he's a real deal. And what gig would I like to be at? One guy. Who is the guy? This guy was so good that even Elvis said, who's that guy in Las Vegas singing like me? And this guy was Mr. Excitement. They do a tribute show. You've seen it in Vegas. The one and only Jackie Wilson. That's the guy. That's the guy. That's the guy. You know what to dance to. That's the man. That's the guy. And you know what? Tying it back to you, my friend. Tom, back to the, that all ties in here right at the end. What a way to finish. I've met some great people through you. Jimmy, James Gorman from the Holy Family Boxing Club, who talks about you as a great friend of yours and a great supporter of yours, that talks about your career at the Holy Family. Jackie Wilson was a Golden Gloves champion. And look at that, getting back to the Crown Gym in Detroit. How did, how did Jackie Wilson die so young? But he was, he's the guy. He's, there'd be no Michael Jackson without Jackie Wilson. Oh, phenomenal! I have a couple of a couple of Jackie's records, and I tell you, even when you're DJing, you know, play a Jackie Wilson record, and people of all ages will be will be up on their feet and clapping and stomping their feet because he's remarkable. Yeah, a great one, and one I wouldn't have talk talk about. Um, for me, yeah, you know, I, I have a have a fond spot for Presley, and I was lucky enough to go and see his the exhibition of all his costumes and cars and the history. You know, pictures and all after that. Because the wonderful thing about Elvis is that they never broke up the collection. They never sold the collection. It's still owned by Priscilla and the whatever trust fund they have. So that's it was amazing. And that was in the Westgate at the at the solid convention that I got to, got to witness that. So that was brilliant. But if if I could go back in time to a gig, um, I'd have to go and see Bob Marley the day he played Daily Mount Park in Dublin because that I was before my time, a bit young to go, but. I've spoken to a few people that were there that day and that would, you know, to see Bob Marley in Dublin must have been very special. Yeah, well, look, there's another one of them guys. They're, they're all gifts. Bob Marley, Elvis, uh, Jackie Wilson, they're gifts. They're gifts to us. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're sometimes they're not, they burn out a lot quicker than was to be expected, but they're gifts. I mean, Bob Marley was a gift. Hugo, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, the journey took us from Canada to Belfast, to Glasgow, and to Las Vegas. So uh, it's been lovely. And so thank you very much for sharing your Celtic soul with us. Andrew, uh, an absolute treat to be with you on this long weekend here in Canada. Uh, thank you, Coramila Margaret, for asking me to be part of this. To you, I say continued success on this journey that you do. You kind of keeps us um, our head above the water and floating that we, you know, we all can't, you know, we can't be at Celtic Park or we can't be at the Westgate Hotel or we, we can't get together. You're just a little touch of that, that kind of, when we listen to your voice, because when I hear your voice, I close my eyes and I, I think uh, I see you in a one piece bikini 
at the pool at the at the Riviera Hotel. Do you remember? That? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Tommy Conlon and Paul Gillespie were your two other full Monty's there. Were they yeah, there? I think that, that he was there. And um, but we, we we done it earlier on. I mean, a bit of crack, but that was with the Sazda crowd. But later on that day. Um, I done a solo and it was for the topless review girls were down sunbathing at the pool. And uh, I showed them I showed them the uh, my tan marks, let's just say that. I'm 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 laughing and thinking about it. No there was no worries about Slimming World that day, was there? No, it's something um Slimming World has never been on the agenda, you know. I got I, I do go to a thing called Keep Fat. Here you go, Slan. God bless you, Andrew. Slán awáile. All the best. Thank you. Heal, heal, my friend. I've known Hugo for many years from those early Las Vegas conventions and I've known he's a great entertainer, but it was lovely to hear his story off stage. So thanks very much for sharing that with us, Hugo. As always, thanks to Ronan McQuillan for producing the show and to Daniel Fogner for producing the video content. The latest talk from the Terrace is up there now, along with the Grand Old Podcast, Celtic Cult Heroes with David Potter, and the Scott Brown Question and Answers on Celtic Fanzine TV. So hit that subscribe button on YouTube, please. And if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, just a wee reminder, you can do so by visiting CelticFanzine.com, where you can become a member, subscribe, buy, or donate for the price of a pint. And you can also buy the latest issue of More Than 90 Minutes, issue 115. Check out the website for some excellent articles and long reads over the weekend. Please download our app, it's free, and then you'll have access to all the podcasts, articles, daily news, video, and info on upcoming events. And we have a first event to look forward to. We're booked to head down to the Rue Glen Hotel in Waterford in November, when I'll be emceeing the gala dinner with special guests Alan Thompson and John Fallon. And I think the tickets are on sale now, if anyone's interested in that. I think Ema from the Irish Brigade will be providing the music along with Celtic Storm so it should be a great night as I said don't forget to download the app and you'll have all of that on the touch of a button on your phone or tablet all episodes of the podcast are available across all platforms so hit the subscribe or follow button and you'll never miss an episode and we'll have a couple of bonus podcasts out next week as well so keep an eye on us for that We'll be back with the Celtic Soul podcast next Friday which will probably be our last one for a couple of weeks because the pubs are opening Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And all the details will be in the podcast description. If your business or Celtic Supporters Club like the podcast and would like to become a sponsor, we'd love you to become a sponsor. So please email us at info at celticfans.com. And as always, you can contact us through the website or message us on social media. And if you're looking for some further listening over the weekend or into next week, check out episode 59 when... The North American Federation main man, Jackie Meaton, was our guest. And staying in North America, we had Philly resident and Belfast-born boy, Charlie Lodd, back in episode 50, while Johnny Vaughan from Dublin joined us. Having a clue what episode that was. (laughs) Sorry, Johnny. (laughs) But if you go into the podcast uh, library, you'll find it there. Gianni Capaldi, who's a Las Vegas resident now and a Hollywood actor, joined us back in episode 31. And Belfast native and former Long Cash prisoner Paddy McMenamin joined us to share his story back in episode 20. Well, folks, you come to the end of another podcast and the end of a year of the podcast as we come up to almost 20 years of the fans in. Wow, where did that time go? This season, well, it's been a disaster. 
The league is over, but Celtic is still not a happy place. Still no manager in place. Well, as we record this anyway, and another funny mess over the season books. And no big party in Las Vegas to look forward to. So, folks, thank you so much for listening and supporting us all year. Stay safe, keep the faith, and we'll play out with the king himself, Elvis Presley, dedicated to Hugo with Viva Las Vegas. Bright light city gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I'm just a devil with love to spare. So Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were more than the 24 hours in the day. Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is a strong heart and a nerve steel. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing. All those holes down the drain. Viva Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. I'm gonna keep on the run, I'm gonna have me some fun. It cost me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it everything I've got Lady luck, please let the dice stay hot Let me shoot a seven with every shot Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Viva deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 